At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Welcome to our series, Newish. Everything's changed, have you? Where we're celebrating that in Christ, we have been given new life. The only question is, are you living it? Let's turn to Romans chapters five through seven to decipher whether we're living in Christ's freedom or trapped in the patterns of our old life. I was with a friend recently who told me a true story about a neighbor of his who opened up and shared about his life growing up, a little bit about his family and his experience. And as a kid, uh, this guy, which by the way, his neighbor is probably in his 60s, if not 70s, but as a kid, he grew up in a home with a dad who was really angry, with a dad who was a drunk. He was plagued by fear of his father from the time that he was a kid. His dad was just a raging alcoholic and an angry man who would come home from the bar in the middle of the night and look for trouble. And that shapes a kid. And this continued for years and years such that this young man at some point began waking up automatically at two o'clock in the morning. Every morning, he'd wake up at two o'clock And he would anticipate his dad's arrival and he sought to be on guard. So dramatic was the impact on his life that even as a 60 or 70 year old, he had a stutter. He lived with a stutter his whole life because of this experience of his dad. Now, he recounted to my friend numerous times that a pastor would come. His mom was a God-fearing woman and a pastor would come and would share the gospel and would meet with his dad and invite him to church, but visit after visit after visit, they declined. And there was no change. And time would come where this young man would go off to college and he would move away from home. And one day he received a phone call from his mother with the incredible news that apparently his dad had come to Christ. That's what she told him. But the response from this young man, no. I know, I've seen what my dad is capable of. I don't believe it. During a visit home during a college break, the young man uh, was staying back under his parents' roof, and it just so happened that he had to sleep in the family room. Now, in the family room, up on the mantel, was an antique clock, one of those old, noisy clocks that was finicky to start and to stop and to set. You know, you had to, like, just do it right. And there was a household rule that only dad touched the clock. Only dad knew how to, how to wind it just right. So don't touch the clock. The problem is the son was sleeping in the same room as that very noisy clock and he wanted to actually get some rest while he was home from college. So he came up with a plan. I'll stop the clock before I go to sleep. I'll wake up early. I'll reset, restart the clock and then everything will, will be fine. My dad won't, won't know it. I'll just do this before he's, before he's up. And so you can imagine, even as a, a 20-something, a college-age young man, he's trying to just avoid anything that would set his dad off. Such was their relationship. Now, the problem is, you might know the story, you might be catching on, he overslept. He overslept, and he wakes up panicked. Oh, my goodness, 
ah, and he realizes my dad, he's up and around, and so he, he sees his dad, and he immediately starts in, dad, I'm sorry, I, I had to sleep, and I said, ah, and, and he's explaining this. He's just trying to already diffuse the situation. And his dad's response, yeah, you're right, it is a pretty noisy clock. It's, I would have done the same thing. Why don't you let me help you restart the clock? And in that moment, the young man knew that his dad's life had changed. He saw evidence of the change in his father's behavior. It wasn't one of anger. It wasn't one of aggression. The dad had experienced what happens to those of us who are in Christ. Total life change. Amen? We've been working our way through some chapters in the book of Romans this fall. It's our series we're calling Newish. And the story I just shared is a beautiful picture, a beautiful illustration of what happens, of what Paul is, is explaining when someone experiences this life-changing salvation because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And in the story, the sinful, the old part of the dad gave way and was replaced by the new life that comes in the Spirit. And Pastor Jacob read our text this morning. We're in Romans 6. I hope you'll be with me. We're just going to go verse by verse this morning. And we're going to dig into the reality of this type of life change. But I want to remind us, I'm going to actually take us back real quick to chapter 5 because I love the imagery that Paul gives us in chapter 5 where he's def- depicting or he's personifying the two competing realms using Adam and Christ. Let me read Romans 5, starting in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So all of us, are born into the reality and the the reign of Adam. And because of his sin, it's passed down through all the generations of humankind where we live in this kingdom of, of sin and oppression which leads to death. And in the presence of a holy and righteous God who cannot tolerate sin, we're all condemned. So Adam is the head of this dominion. And I talked about death. Where did death come from? You know, you think about that. Death came from sin. If you look back in the Garden of Eden, it was never present before sin entered the picture. It was never part of the plan in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was meant for life and flourishing until sin came, and that led to death. And eventually, because of God's kindness and His love toward His people, He gave them the law which we can read about in the Old Testament. The early pages of the, of the Old Testament talk about the law. Now, a quick primer on the law. The law was never given as a way to remove sin. The law was not powerful enough or strong enough to do that. The law was given as a way to expose. It was a spotlight, much like I'm standing here and I have spotlights on me so that you can see me when I'm talking. That's what the law did with sin. Couldn't remove it couldn't eliminate it, couldn't actually make somebody righteous. The law just acted as a spotlight to expose it. And it continually pointed out the fact that humans can't do it. They can't do anything in and of themselves to make themselves 
righteous. They're always condemned. Now, the other ruling head that that Paul alludes to in Romans 5 is Jesus Christ. And we believe by faith that Jesus was God. And he humbled himself and he took on flesh. It's the same flesh that you and I have this morning. He took on flesh and he lived on this earth. And because he was still God, who was obedient and holy, he lived a perfect life. The only one since Adam to live with no sin. But Jesus was obedient to the plan of God. So it was the plan of God that there would be restoration. And so not only did Jesus live perfectly, but he also lived the plan of God and that he came as the one and the only sacrifice that could actually lead to righteousness. So all these other sacrifices that came about because of the law never actually did it, but it was Jesus who did it. And so he was the satisfactory sacrifice that would save humanity from condemnation and would make a way for there actually to be a new reality, a new realm of life and righteousness that was free of God's wrath and punishment. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Christ ended the power of death and oppression and condemnation. That's what we just sang about. Death was arrested and our life began. And because of that and because of the reality that Jesus is very much alive today, he is no longer dead and he stands at the head of this new dominion, this realm of life and righteousness. This is very good news. Can I get an amen? Yeah, that's the gospel. Good news. So, Keep in mind, as we proceed through Romans 6, you have Adam and Christ, these two figures. And Paul is using Romans, he's using this this depiction as a bit of a, a GPS for us, right? So we all love, if you've got a mobile device and you don't know where you're all, you are or you want to know the quickest way to get there, you bring up your map app and the little blinking blue dot tells you here is where you are. And Paul is using... Romans to show here is where you are in the journey between Adam and Christ, these two realms. And he definitively is saying to those who are in faith, here you are, you're in Christ, you're in Jesus land, you're in his kingdom, you're not in sin land anymore, you're under Jesus's authority and here is why it matters. That's what He's unpacking in Romans 6. So as we pick up chapter 6, again, remember, Paul's answering the question raised in verse 1 that we looked at last week. So if here's our sin, which we still sin, even though we are considered righteous before God, we still sin. So here's our sin. And if grace is always more than our sin, if it's superabounding, according to the end of chapter 5, then the question is, does it really matter how we live, right? If grace is always going to be more than our sin, Does it really make a difference? And Paul's answer is, don't be ridiculous. Of course it matters. Because you're dead to sin, you're alive to God. Because you're dead to sin, you live with Christ. We're united in Christ. And Paul is so meticulous in his writing, he's like an attorney. He wants to spell everything out. He doesn't want there to be confusion. 
he wants to connect this to that, and he's making his argument. I mean, it's just rock solid. That's how Paul, Paul does it. And so he's going to reiterate some stuff. So when we see here in verse 8 and 9, at the beginning of our passage, he's actually already said that. He's just rehashing the move from the kingdom of Adam into the kingdom of Jesus through Christ's death. And so he begins his argument in verse 8 with this. If we have died with Christ, we believe. Now, believe is faith, right? So we have faith. So we, if we have died with Christ, we have faith. And what is it that we believe? What's our faith in? That we will also live with Him. Our faith our life matters. It matters because we have the hope of life with Jesus forever. How we live today, the choices that we make, has implications. 10,000 years from now, which I don't plan on still breathing and being in this body 10,000 years from now, but there is still life for you and me in Jesus. And Paul continues this, so we'll unpack this a little bit more, but Paul continues that we know something. So we believe... We have faith and we know, and we know that Christ will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Amen? And in the same is true for us, Paul, Paul argues. That's what Pastor Jacob talked about last Sunday in part one of chapter six. We have the same experience if we're in Christ because we've been baptized with him in his death and we're raised in newness of life. What's true of Jesus is true of those who are in Jesus. This is why baptism is such a meaningful and significant thing. It's not just like, oh yeah, it's the thing I'm supposed to do. It's actually such a beautiful symbolism of absolute new life in Jesus and that Jesus is my master. We identify, we recognize that we're in Christ and in his good kingdom. And because Jesus is alive, you also are alive. Again, this has temporal ramifications. It also has eternal implications. It helps you to see the world around you to make sense of it, to put the lenses on of the Holy Spirit so that you know how to look at your, yourself and your situation. And verse 11, Paul says that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin. Dead to sin and alive to God. And this is both really encouraging to me, that I can consider myself dead to sin and alive to God, but it's also super challenging. And, and I'm, I'm raised with the question of like, how, how can that actually be true how can I actually be dead to sin when I feel its effects so very strongly in my body? My life experience tells me that I still have temptation. I have walked with Jesus now for nearly 34 years. That I have been part of his kingdom. I transferred my citizenship toward his kingdom. And when I came to, to faith... I didn't understand very much, but I did have faith as a child that helped me to understand by God's Spirit, helped me to understand that I didn't have a way to deal with my sin problem. I knew I was a bad boy. And the older I get, the more I walk in the way of Jesus, the more I realize sometimes I'm not walking so much as I'm stumbling, I'm tripping, I'm crawling, I'm being dragged by the goodness of God. I'm still so aware of temptation in my own heart where I go to things naturally. So am I really dead to sin when 
its pull is so strong, the pull towards sin and just rebellion to like arrest control and like, no, I'll be the master again, thank you very much. I know I'm not a slave to sin, but it's in the, the experience of my life, day in and day out, I know that it still is so strong. I had a job once that developed into a pretty stressful job role. I had to be on my A game all the time uh, because mistakes were not, they were not a good thing, they were, they were not tolerated. Don't make mistakes. Now, I'm a pretty high responsible person. I like doing things well. I value excellence, and so that's my, that's my personality. But I was continually plagued with this fear of performance, and, I, and I'm not going to measure up to what the standard is. I mean, it, it, was, it was really, really stressful. And I was also on call pretty much 24-7. It was not unusual for me to get a call or a text late at night or on the weekend or, or something, and I was expected to move into action, fix it, take care of it, clean it up. That was pretty normal. Now, thankfully, the Lord brought closure to that season, <laughs> and I was able to walk away with my head held high because I was ultimately working for the boss, who is Jesus, and thankfully, I maintained some amicable relationships with coworkers and even with the employer. But I received a text one evening from my former boss a few years after leaving the organization. And the text merely asked me to please call at my earliest convenience. That was the same cryptic text that I got numerous times while working for this individual. And I never knew, once I make that phone call, what's on the other end of it. Is it a mess to be cleaned up? Did I make a mistake? Did I overlook something? Am I going to get reamed out? Like, it, it was terrifying to not know. I mean, that's a very cryptic text, isn't it? And so, receiving that text years later was still triggering to me. It still brought up all of these emotions and this like, ugh, angst, even though I was no longer responsible for that job, even though I had no expectations of me, I answered not at all to this person. Look what it did to me. Everything within me was saying something completely contrary to what was true. My experience is like I was back in the job, even though I'm not even employed by this person anymore. Friends, whatever our experience tells us, the good news proclaimed throughout the pages of the New Testament are that sin isn't our boss anymore. It isn't. We don't answer to it. It doesn't get to tell us what to do because our new boss is Jesus. He is our new master. But the enemy, ooh, the enemy, he wants to sow doubt. He wants to just confuse us. He wants to drag us back to where we were to make us feel like we're still on the job of sin. That's why Jesus calls him in John 8, he calls him the father of lies. But Paul instructs believers here that despite the temptation that they have to sin, despite the brokenness that they surely would have felt living in Rome in the first century, and despite what we've experienced here in the 2021, we're to count ourselves dead to sin, to tell ourselves the truth, to believe that reminds me, a year ago when we began our life group journey, last fall, we all read together gospel fluency. How many remember that? And in the first chapter, Jeff Vanderstelt of that book, 
he brings up this notion of everyone is an unbeliever. And I've quoted this before in a message, but I I love it. It's so applicable. And he writes this, we still have places in our lives where we don't believe God. There are spaces where we don't trust his word. We don't believe that what he accomplished in Jesus Christ is enough to deal with our past or what we're facing in this moment or the next. That is unbelief. But remember, what's true of Jesus is true of us who are in Jesus. And we have to believe this. We have to tell ourselves this truth over and over and over again. And the second part of verse 11, you'll see, is though though we consider ourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. So not just dead anymore, but we're actually alive. We have a new life and a new reality that we get to experience now. And yes, we will get to experience it someday. But Paul is not just dangling this carrot and saying like, hey, once you die, you're really going to live. No, I, I actually think that we're meant to live in, in, in light of the kingdom, in the here and now. We get invited into that. So this is our reality. As, we, as alive in the realm of Jesus, with his righteousness, with his abundant inheritance, that's what we're invited into. And so what are the ramifications? What, so what, really? Well, Paul lays out three exhortations that he presses into these believers. The first is that because we count ourselves dead to sin, verse 12 tells us that we must not let sin rule in our bodies any longer. Now, Paul makes an interesting distinction. He doesn't say, don't let sin reign in you. No, he says, Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Now, is this just semantics? Is it Paul using words again? Or is there significance? I believe that there is theological and spiritual significance to his use of the term, your mortal body. And if you go in and you look at the Greek, what does they mean by that? It means the like physical body, the mortal body, right? The one that's going to die, the one that you're looking at right now. That is the mortal body. Now, I believe it's significant because there's more to you than just your body. Of course there is. So when Paul writes that you are dead to sin, he's talking about the, the true you, the, the truest part of you that is before God, that is laid bare before God, the intangible He's talking about you and your soul. And so if you're in Christ, you have been declared righteous, you have been set free from the oppression of sin, and you actually have the capacity and the ability by God's Spirit to not sin. You are no longer in sin. However, we know that sin is a power that seeks to master you. Right? Sin is a power that seeks to master you. But sin cannot master you if you're in Christ because you're dead to sin. It's not your boss anymore. That's impossible. But Paul is warning here that there's always going to be this aspect of sin that is trying to control your body, that's trying to get you to sin, to turn what is what is good into what is not good, into what is unholy. So as long as you're in a mortal body, sin will be present, which let me just 
draw out the implications. As long as you're alive, sin is going to be present in your body. And if it's not kept in check, sin seeks to dominate you and to force you to obey its passions. Now, Paul uses that word passions here. And what that really is getting at is your desire, covetousness, lust. Sin is very good at turning what is good into what is unholy, to just turn your attention to corrupt things. I mean, take food and drink, for example. Our bodies, our mortal bodies, need food and drink to eat, uh, I mean, to live. So we have to have this sustenance in order for us to stay alive. And praise God, He's given us wonderful flavors and texture and variety. I mean, it's awesome, right? But how easy is it for us to go beyond what is good, to go beyond what God intended for our mortal bodies? It's real easy for us to consume too much, to eat too much. And all of a sudden, what is meant for good gets turned because of our passions into something that is unholy. Take also, for uh, instance, physical intimacy, sexual relationship that God gave only to a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage together. Praise God that he made things, he gave us pleasure, he, he gave our bodies to desire that, and he gave all of that as a gift. But how easy is it for us to go beyond what God intended? And sin, because of its passions, its lust, its covetousness, all of a sudden it gets turned and when it does, the mortal body feels the effects of it. It enslaves, it ensnares, it ruins, it brings brokenness and division. Sin, because of it, lust and, and where we go with it, it just turns into darkness and evil. That's the reality of passions in the mortal body. And Paul's second exhortation is found in verse 13. He says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So what he's meaning here by members, I think, includes your body, your speech, your influence, your possessions, anything that is at your disposal, your, your, uh, any aspect of your capabilities or your faculties. I think that's what he's talking about here with members. And so Paul is strongly urging us don't let those be used as a tool for sin. This idea of instrument, this, this tool, you think about a medical doctor that uses instruments. Don't, don't let those be used. Don't let your body be used for that. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks, but Paul kind of has this like internal struggle that we get to read in Romans 7 where he's like, oh man, the, the thing I don't want to do, I do. Ah, just goes on and on. So we feel that, right? We feel the effects of temptation and sin and how it wages war on our bodies. There's always this war between the law of God, which is holiness, and the, the brokenness that comes with sin and how it tries to ensnare us. So there's a keen awareness of what we're not to do. We're not to place any of ourselves at the disposal of sin. Rather, and this is where the end of, chapter, of, of verse 13 comes in, we're to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Now, in Matthew 5, Jesus said to his followers, you have to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. 
So the standard, the target that we're moving toward is holiness. And though you and I live with sinful motives and actions, the expectation is holiness. So we give ourselves to God actively and proactively. Like this is not a passive thing, Paul is saying. We have to do it actively. This is why you and I must cognitively believe and live. Remember he talked about believing and knowing so this is where we engage our minds, our mind, our body, our energy, our attitude, our emotions, all of this stuff. It's offered, God, to you for your glory. This is a proactive way that we, that we worship. And then verse 14, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Praise God that sin no longer dominates us and defines us. Praise God that when we do sin, there is not hopelessness and condemnation. And note that he teaches that we're not under the law anymore. So I referenced the law at the, at the beginning, but one of the repeated practices of the law was sacrifices. So God demanded that a life was given to cover up. That was the sacrifice being made. And so animals, I mean, you can read all the, the details of what animals are used and how and when. And, and have you ever thought that in the millennia of God's people following the requirements of the law, how many deaths were there? I mean, just think about it. How many deaths in the thousands of years that people were following the law? I mean, that's an innumerable number of deaths. It's even hard to fathom how much death there was. Because the sacrifice and the, really the death of the animal never went far enough. It, like, it was on this vicious cycle that you sin, you confess, you make sacrifice, you're forgiven, and then all over again, you sin again. And like, it just is death after death, sacrifice after sacrifice, year after year. It was never enough. The law at its core says, you failed, you're broken, you're condemned. You can't do right. There's nothing that you can do that is right. But praise God, we sing about this, we talk about this every week. God's grace sets us in a whole new reality. God's grace breaks the mastery of sin. God's grace recognizes Jesus' work on our behalf is what is sufficient and finally sets us free from that condemnation. God's grace supplies the will and the power to live in a way that is pleasing to Him. God's grace says this, you are forgiven, you are justified, you are new, you are loved, you are accepted, and you are alive. That's what we get with God's grace. So this morning I'm going to talk to two types of individuals who might be listening as I close. If you're not in Christ, you are under the realm of sin and death. If you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, this is your reality. And you know, you, you look pretty good on the outside. I mean, most of us are pretty good at, at cleaning up so that we look pretty good. But that is the reality for you, and you're in bondage, and you know this. You, in the deepest places of your heart, you know that there is no escape from the brokenness. There's no escape from the bitterness, from the anger, the rage, the, 
the hurt, you know, you fill in the blank. You know this. This is life in the realm of sin and death. And listen, I'm not trying to make you feel lesser. I'm not trying to dog you. The truth is we all have experienced it. Everyone in this room has experienced that weight, that disappointment, that longing. But there is more for you than this. There is freedom. And I hope you have seen freedom through the pages of Romans 6. I hope you have seen from our time together that freedom begins by placing your faith in Jesus and stepping away from the dominion of sin and death and darkness and stepping into the light and life that's available through Jesus. Paul wrote this earlier in Romans. In chapter 3, he wrote, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That's a legal term. That's a legal term. Are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To have the freedom that your soul longs for, to be assured of the new life and the purposes of God for you both now, yeah, in the temporal life, but also in the eternal life that we believe, can be yours today. You confess, Jesus, I want you to be my new master. I'm tired of having to answer to the master of sin. I believe that Jesus, God's son, purchased for me redemption, that he made it possible for me to no longer be a slave to sin and confess that Jesus is your new master, your Lord. That can be yours today, even as you sit in your seat. The second group of people I want to talk to is those who are in Jesus by faith. And what we're unpacking here in Romans is very good news for those of us who are not very good at being Christians. I raised my hand first on that one. It's been my prayer this week, and particularly this morning, that you would receive encouragement by the Spirit of God and challenge. That you'll be encouraged that you're not a slave to sin, it's not your boss. As you walk in the way of Jesus, though, as you contemplate this, I'm sure the Holy Spirit has tugged, and I pray that the Holy Spirit has tugged at your heart, that there are areas of your life that do not reflect the way of Jesus, that are not the way of holiness and godliness. Now, holiness gets a bad rap. It does. Holiness, like, don't do this, don't do that. Like, oh, I got to give up something, right? I'm going to miss out on something. And truthfully, you do. You do miss out on something. You're missing out on things that would be great for your mortal body. You miss out on some temporary pleasure and some satisfaction that make you feel like you're in charge. That is what your body craves because of sin and its desires. Lust and happiness and whatever feels right to you. You do miss out on those in the life of holiness. But remember, that leads to death. That's not what God has for you. It's not what he's called you to. So we are set apart for God and what he has for us. The whole idea of holiness is being set apart. It's just setting apart for special purposes. And holiness, when you step into the abundant life of God and when you follow him and you live holy lives, even in your mortal body, that leads to your flourishing. 
That actually is the abundant life that God has for us. It's what we were always meant to experience. So dear friends, look to Jesus as your master. Not sin, it can't be your master. Discover how appealing are Jesus' words and his ways for you. That's the importance of spending time hearing from him. Not just being spoon-fed by what someone up here communicates. Not just by listening to a podcast that's really helpful or Christian music. But when you get into the word yourself, you understand the truth and the beauty of Jesus' love for you. And in turn, you have the opportunity to love Jesus first and most. And you realize that when you sin, there's grace. You can repent. You can go the opposite direction of where your sin is trying to take you. You can renounce your sin. I think it's helpful to say, this sin no longer has mastery over me. It's not my boss. You renounce the sin and then you remember, you live based on the truth of what Jesus has done for you. You live in freedom. You walk in freedom. The sin doesn't define you. And I'll be honest, this continual practice of repentance, it's been the same thing in my life for 34 years. It's going to be lifelong. But God is faithful. We sang about that. He's going to give you what you need to be faithful because that's who he is. So stand firm. Practically speaking, there are a couple of application points for you. You're here in the room this morning. That's great. Or maybe you're joining online. But when we gather together as a spiritual family, we lift Jesus up. We keep Jesus at the center. That's why I need corporate worship every Sunday morning. I need to remind myself I'm not the king. It's not about me. It's nothing that I do. So we center ourselves as a spiritual family. There's something spiritual that happens and holy that happens when we come together when you edify and strengthen yourself, you engage actively. You don't just look at the people up there. This is not a concert. You actively engage in song because you're trying to get the truth in your heart. And you're encouraged because you see brothers and sisters and, and they know you and they can speak truth into you. That's spiritual community. I've invited people into my life that where they see things that are not the way of Jesus, they have permission to call me out on it. They see things in me. They keep me accountable. They also help me to celebrate when my eyes are down and I'm discouraged. They lift my eyes and say, man, this is the gospel. Isn't he good to you? We need spiritual community. We need one another. This is what we hope for. This is why we're talking about life groups. It's not just so we can have a little Bible study and some cookies. No, God wants so much more. us. He gave us the gift of each other. So friends, live for your new master. Walk out of here with good news. Paul's heady. It's heavy to think about our sin. Trust me, I had to live with it this week. But Jesus is our master. Sin is not our master. Walk in grace and freedom and life and joy because of what he's done for us. Let's talk to him right now about this. Jesus, we recognize your goodness, your realness. This is not just something that we hope is true and that we 
mentally assent to, but Jesus, we believe in the depths of our soul that you are real, you are alive, and that everything we read about you here in Romans and in the text of Scripture is true. Help us to live with joy and freedom. Help us to live with encouragement that even when our experience is not even when our experiences that we're tempted to sin and we're tempted to rebel, that there is grace, that there is strength that you provide, that there is a way out. Thank you that we have your Holy Spirit to remind us of this truth even as we go from this place today. I pray this in your good and beautiful name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.